welcome to another episode of Silk and Steel Podcast. I am your host, Carl Zha. Today, June 7th, 2019, and as many of you may have been aware, just a few days ago, specifically on the June 4th, that was the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square protest, or rather the end of the Tiananmen Square protest. Today, we're going to do something very different. Um, we're going to switch the role around. So instead of being the host, I will be the interviewee. And I have brought aboard our excellent return guest, Sun Fei Yang, who have been previously with our podcast on the episode on the Karl Marx anime. And he will play the host, and he will interview me about my personal experience in China in 1989 as an almost 13-year-old living on the campus of Chongqing University. Uh, Mr. Sun, welcome to the show. Um, thanks, Carl. Thanks for having me back. I'm really excited that um, you know when, when you needed someone to interview you, uh, you thought of me first. So uh, I really appreciate that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you did a great job uh, last time, and I thought what uh, would be a better person to, to be the host on this show, because I'm you are a little bit younger than me, so I don't think you were born yet, right, in 1989? That's correct. I'm uh, a Jiuling Ho, or uh, born after 1990. Um, my dad was involved in uh, some of the protests, so that kind of it gives you an idea. Like, I think we're at least a, almost like a generation apart here. Um, so two very different like, uh, perspectives on Tiananmen. Yeah, perfect. This is perfect. Okay, so now I'm just going to shut up and hand over the host chair to you and let you run the show. Go ahead, Swing. It's all yours. All right. Thank you. Well, this is my podcast now, and I'm very excited to have Carl uh, as my guest today. So, um, you know, it is the 30th anniversary uh, of the Tiananmen protest, or in Chinese known as the, the 6-4 turbulence. Um, and, you know, some, some of the narratives that we really don't get in the West are, are stories from Chinese people in China at the time, and, you know, and how the protests were reported then, what their perspectives are, you know, and just what the general feeling was. So, you know, I, I wanted to start basically with you just telling us about your personal experience. Um, you know, where were you in China in 1989? How old you were? And, and basically just walk us through, you know, like what you felt was going on from about April to June of 1989. Okay, so first, first of all, I want to say I was not even 13. I was about four months away from reaching my 30, 13th birthday on June 1989. Um, I was uh, in my first year junior high. I was in seventh grade. Uh, the, one of the reasons I want to talk about this and to be interviewed is because now we have reached a point where now we have people who were born after Tiananmen Square writing about Tiananmen, right? And, and now now I, I, I <laughs> go to any media site, I see all these Western uh, journalists and writers who who were weren't even born back then. Now they're you know commenting on Tiananmen Square. This it's getting ridiculous. Uh, I before I didn't feel qualified because you know there are plenty of uh, college students 
who had been participant in 1989, who went through that whole experience, who sat in Tiananmen Square. But now, since we we have all the youngins、uh, who have never been in China talking about Tiananmen,、uh, so I, I feel okay. I, I can maybe I can provide a little bit perspective as a, a person who was who、uh, who was born in China, who grew up there, who、um, you know witnessed and participated in some of the going ons at the time. But one thing about 1989, it's not just、uh, a protest. In Beijing, although that was its focal point,、uh, it was a national, very nationwide protest. At the time,、uh, as an almost thirteen-year-old junior high student, I was living on the campus of Chongqing University in in Chongqing, which is a large、uh, urban center in southwest China. And I have lived on campus since nineteen eighty-two. Uh, when I started、uh, primary school, because my dad was a lecturer at,、uh, at the university, and since 1982, I have actually experienced many waves of student protests. <laughs> so 1989 was just、uh, a last in a series of student protests throughout 1980s.、Uh, the very earliest. Uh, Chongqing University student protest I, that I remember was、uh, in my first grade in 1982.、Uh, at the time,、uh, so during World War II, there was a lot of、uh, anti-air raid shelters,、uh, basically tunneled dug in the hillside in Chongqing because Chongqing was a wartime capital of China in World War II, and it was bombed extensively by Japan. And during Mao Mao Zedong era,、um, that series of tunnels were expanded、um, because China at the time was preparing for possible war with both United States and Soviet Union, especially after the Sino-Soviet split. So there were many many such tunnels、uh, on campus on campus of Chongqing University. And during nineteen eighties, with the end of the Cultural Revolution、um, and the arrival of opening and reform period, so a lot of these old tunnels are to be reused,、um, and for purpose of economic development. Now, so some of the tunnels were reopened and rented out to、um, some local farmers nearby who use them to raise mushrooms, for example. And during one such、um, opening of the tunnels, they found—I、um, was not clear on the exact、uh, device they found—but it was、uh, they found some radioactive materials.、Uh, you know, back in the days, you know, during the Cultural Revolution, when Chongqing was basically a, a armed city, there was always like you know weapon manufacturers.、Uh, Uh, factories all over the place,、um, and Chongqing University, you know, being a, a major research center. I, I, I'm not, I wasn't clear on the nature of the device, but what I heard was it was radioactive, and that sparked a little bit of a、uh, outrage among the students. So they stage a, a, a protest.、Uh, they they hold a march to march on the city government, and、uh, you know, I I I was.、Uh, 
first graders. It was very new to me. Like I think also the the you know the just the spectacle of all these university students going on on protests. Um, we also saw some foreigners with cameras joining the crew, and they had banners like "Huan Wu Qinchun, Huan Wu Zisun," which. Which would mean, uh, you know, return to me my youth and 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 my children, because uh, you know the the rumor there was rumor mill going around saying, oh my god, the, the radioactivity is going to you know affect their reproductive system of the college students, um, and and the whole protest atmosphere was actually very festive, you know, you have these um, college students coming out of their dorms, beating up, beating on their like pots and pants. Uh, they some some of them have a, a radio blasting out rock music. It was a very much like a party atmosphere, right? And that that's generally the kind of the protesting environment that I experienced throughout eighties. Because there was there were been many more protests uh, to come since nineteen eighty two, um, because there was a series of protests started in nineteen eighty six. Uh, that started out in eastern China, uh, in Anhui, and then area like Shanghai, um, and then that quickly spread, especially around college campuses. Even pre-internet age, you know, information still travel fast. Like the the University of Chongqing college students, they have a have a reputation for student activism, right? So even back in the pre-communist era. In the in the last day of the KMT rule of China, in uh, 1948 and 1949, in the waning days of Chinese civil war, the students of Chongqing University were quite famous for holding large scale protests against the rule of Chiang Kai Shek. In fact, one of the famous landmark on campus is the Tuanjie Wangchang, the Solidarity Square. Uh, it was so named because they they held um, that's where they held a large rally, anti Chiang Kai Shek rally. Um, I think either in 1948 or 1949, basically in protest against um, you know what they see as official corruption, uh, hyperinflate, runaway hyperinflation, and the, the Chiang Kai Shek's pursuit of civil war. Um, so in 1980s, the students. These are the, uh, so one, one thing for people who are not familiar with Chinese history, the higher education system, the whole college university system were shut down during Cultural Revolution for about 10 years. Um, uh, they didn't reopen college campuses for, um, you know, admittance until 1978, you know, at the, until the end of the Cultural Revolution. And, and college education was still very much a way for intelligent, smart, young men and women of poor Chinese families to get ahead. Because at that time, uh, in 1980s, all the college student education were free, uh, you know, room and board. Um, maybe maybe the students have to pay for food, I, I wasn't sure, but all the, everything else was free, uh, provided by the, subsidized by the state. But it was very competitive, um, you know. It's the there were only a very limited number of universities in China at the time 
and among a large pool of high school graduates who wants to uh, have a shot to make it in. I mean, like being a college student in 1980s is like passing the imperial civil service exam back in the old dynasty China. Um, like literally, like people will call this uh, college student Zhuangyuan. You know, Zhuangyuan is like uh, uh, somebody who who got passed the highest level of uh, of. Uh, of the imperial exam in the past, who actually be, who placed first uh, in the uh, in the old. Yeah, so that means that those protests that you saw in Chongqing in, in the nineteen eighties, those are among some of the first classes of college students to attend Chongqing University since the uh, um, the Gaokao was reestablished, yes. right? So use it. Not only are they among some of the most educated and elite young people in China, they're also, you know, one of the very first, uh, like generations to come back to college after, after yes. the culture revolution. Yes. Um, so, I mean, the, the sense at the time that was these college students, right. They, the, the both themselves and people around them see them as like, uh, cream de la cream of the Chinese society. There are the, you know, the future, the future leaders of China. And, and most students see themselves as such. And 1980 was such a time of rapid change um, from, you know, the time of Cultural Revolution because, you know, as late as 1976, the country was still largely closed off um, and definitely closed off to Western influence. You know, people were actually <laughs> being targeted for having overseas connections back in <laughs> Cultural Revolution. So uh, once cultural revolution is over and China decided to pursue an opening uh, door policy to to connect with the white outside world. It was a very excite, exciting times for many people. You know, like a lot of the, these Chinese college students, especially, they're discovering the world for the first time. Um, you know, during cultural revolution, people in China were told that people in China were enjoying the very high standard of living and people outside of China were living in very dire strait. Like literally, right? <laughs> so, but once the, uh, the opening reform period started, when people take a look uh, to, you know, where the information were able to pass in side China, people took take a look. And they were shocked to find that was not the case, that, that in fact, that China has lagged behind in many aspects, um, in economic development especially, because at the time, China was one of the poorest nations, not only in the world, but in, in Asia, in East Asia especially. Uh, I think the only country that were doing poor, even more poorly than China at the time were Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, basically the country that just came out of the uh, Vietnam War. And every, uh, at the time, you know, the, the, the term white war, right, the, <laughs> the foreign country just had this magical appeal to the Chinese citizen. It just seems that everything is better outside the national borders, right? Everybody wants to uh, immigrate, you know, to go to go go outside, uh, go abroad, and you know, at, at the time, to give you a, a, a 
proper context at the time, even North Korea enjoyed higher standard of living than China, right? I, I mean, not just North Korea, but Indonesia, um, Thailand, uh, Myanmar, <laughs> everybody. Um, so it was both a shock and also people were welcoming um, new ideas, right? And, and it's, it's in a way, it's similar to, uh, say, like the end of a late 19th century when during the late Qing period, when the Chinese intellectuals are suddenly um, start embracing ideas coming in from the West. Uh, it's 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 very similar because you know like during cultural revolution a lot of these ideas has been cut off. And I think they were they were very explicit about that in 1989. Like the the anniversary of the May Fourth Movement, you know, which is you know similar to uh, or associated with a lot of those Chinese intellectuals, you know, pushing for for Western ideas. I, I think that was a, a very specific reference that the some of the protesters had wanted to make. So do you think that spirit also influenced the earlier protests in 1980, in the 1980s? I mean, May 4th movement has always been enshrined by the, the communist government in China as dawning a new culture, right? But mostly uh, during Cultural Revolution, I think the more emphasis was on the anti-imperialism aspect. Uh, uh, both anti-imperialism and anti-traditionalism aspect of, of May 4th, right? Of course, the other part of the anti-traditionalism is, is uh, uh, rejuvenating China by adopting uh, new ideas, right? New ideas from the West or from Soviet Union. I'm kind of rambling on, but what I want to convey is that 1980s was a very exciting time. It was a time of possibility. Right. And, and, and it's also a time that when pe the people were actually very pro-American and pro-West, because uh, one of the things that happened, especially after Nixon visited China, China started to pivot toward West and, and join the basically join the anti-Soviet camp. Still at a, you know, China kept the West kind of at arm's length because ideologically it's still very opposed to the West um, in but in 1978, around the time uh, Cultural Revolution ended and opening reform started, that there has been kind of a sea shift. People in general were, were very, very pro-West and, uh, uh, and they were, you know, very interested in, you know, Western literature, history, philosophy, you know, like it's a very hip thing back then on college campuses to, to talk philosophy, right? <laughs> to discuss Western philosophy. Before I ramble on, I just want to uh, also point out that, um, you know, throughout 80s, there have been a series of student protests, and none of them have been, you know, resulted in, you know, severe crackdown or, 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 or dire consequences for the participant. But it, it, things got started to change in 1986, because that was a uh, that was one of the big national, uh, nationwide student protests. And the result of that, I actually interviewed somebody who was a participant of 1986 student protests in Shanghai for one of my old, for, for, for my old podcast, Clash. Um, and, and basically from um, my conversation with Mike is that uh, at the time, the students 
who are just tired of all these um, kind of old school restrictions that school officials place on their, their, their personal lives on campus. They just wanted, um, you know, to wear jeans and, and, and go to disco and, 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 and have a great time and not be bothered. And at, at the time, there was also a, a kind of like generational um, gap, I guess, because, you know, a lot of the older generation, uh, especially the people who populate the college uh, campus, college officialdom, you know, they don't understand uh, like the youth culture, right? They, 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 they kind of, uh, and, and what, what they don't understand sometimes they fear, um, you know, especially they see this whole wholeheartedly embrace of Western pop culture by the young. They, they kind of, they kind of saw that as a kind of rejection of the old Chinese <laughs> traditional culture. And the, the young, like the, the college students in the eighties, just like the youngs everywhere, they're, they're, they're rebellious. They, they want to experiment with new things and they don't like all these restrictions placed on, on them by their elders. And, and mostly that's what they're protesting for. Right. And they just want to have a, a like more personal freedom to, for example, to, uh, <laughs> to, to, to date, uh, on campus at the time in the eighties, I remember there was actually, you know, some explicit rules about, you know, no dating, you know, because <laughs> no dating and, and people, there will be like college counselors, you know, keep checks on the, on the students' personal lives, which a lot of the students find very restrictive. But at end of 1986, uh, you know, the, 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 the student movement that's initially started as students want more freedom, um, on campus in their personal life start to sh morph into a, a more political movement, right? There was a, a famous physicist, uh, Fang Lizi, um, who kind of led that movement and to, to demand uh, political change, to demand uh, democracy. And Fang Lizi actually had, uh, um, at the time, it was very fashionable to have these... Uh, uh, salons where they're just basically like kind of discussion groups, right? <laughs> well, we, we, we now have Reddit or, or back then they actually have salons where all these college uh, professors, intellectuals gather and they talk politics, talk, talk about democracy, talk about uh, philosophy, talk about future of China. Um, uh, I, I, I remember watching a documentary um, very recently on of Western reporters in China at the time. And I remember one reporter commenting is that she thought all these uh, political salons were very like Mickey Mouse, right? But at the time for the Chinese, it was very new, very exciting. Because um, now like, you know, we, especially with all the restrictions on cultural revolution got lifted, it feels like everything is possible. Um, things, it's, you know, things could change. And, and, and it's, it's a time of hope. Um, and then, but, but, but uh, there's also a lot of pushback, you know, in 1986, after the student movement turned um, into more a political movement, there was a pushback from, especially a more conservative uh, wing of the officialdom. Um, at the end, the result is that the 
at the time, the designated successor to Deng Xiaoping, who had been the, the general secretary of Communist Party in China, Hu Yaobang, was was seen as uh, too too ineffective. You know, the, he, he's too soft on on stopping the student protest. So he was uh, he was basically purged in a soft coup. Why well, it's not really a soft coup? It, you know, like at the time in the nineteen eighties, they called Deng Xiaoping the, the the paramount leader, but you know, it wasn't like a Mao style um, one man rule. Uh, you know, Deng Xiaoping uh, at the time he uh, was a very hands off type of uh, type of boss. He he basically led people like Wu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyang run the show. I mean, Deng Xiaoping set the direction and 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 let the uh, uh, let the people under him uh, have a lot of uh, freedom in. in in actual implementation, but then there's also um, among the ruling, uh, I, I don't know how would you call it. It's a it's a it's a it's a group uh, leadership, right? The, the Deng Xiaoping was first among his peer. It wasn't like uh, you know, like he he wasn't one. Definitely, it was not one man rule. But so some part of these uh, uh, the political pol Politburo were alarm at the pace of change in 1980s and there was some pushback and in the end you know in the end of the factional struggle we all was sidelined he was removed from his uh, position as uh, general secretary of the communist party which at the time was a nominally as the highest position uh, most powerful position in the country so do you remember hearing about that news uh, as a kid then when, when Hui Yaobang was removed from power? Yeah, yeah. so that's, I was 10 years old, right, in 1986, but, but I, I mm -hmm. knew about it because, yeah. because uh, uh, you know, Hui Yaobang was on the forefront of all newspaper media. He was, um, um, he was very much responsible um, for rehabilitation of a lot of people who got persecuted by... During Cultural Revolution, especially the public intellectual, especially a lot of intellectuals, right? So, so that's why he's very popular among the the uh, college educated, um, the the intellectuals and the, and the college students because um, you know he's the man who kind of uh, lifted the shackle, right? And then the, and and uh, and but but. That's another reason we almost got purged because he was seeing us being soft on the on the uh, student protest. Um, and I lived on Chongqing University at the time, right? I'm surrounded. I keep on hearing this conversation by my parents, by our neighbors. Uh, you know, all college professors or or their their, their families. They they all talk about. <laughs> they all talk about this, including you know Hu Yaobang's removal. So yeah, I I, I definitely remember that, and and the, the sense then was like um, at least on campus of Songjing University that Hu Yaobang was kind of wrong by um, getting the axe. He was kind of made the the, the, the fall fall guy, and and uh, to replace Hu Yaobang, uh, Deng Xiaoping promoted Zhao Ziyang to. Uh, be the next successor, right? And then, um, I mean, uh, Cao Ziyang is more, um, at the time, he was more known as like an economic guy. He, he, he was, his forte was economic reform. Um, he was actually 
originally from Sichuan province. He was a, I think he was a general secretary of Communist Party in Sichuan province. And, and in the early 80s, one of the things that he did was um, allow, um, uh, basically allow the, the, the implementing the, the responsibility, the household responsibility system, where um, they, whereas before all the farmers in the countryside, they have to give up all their grains to the government at a government mandated price, um, whereas uh, and, and all the land were being collectivized, right? And then and people divided up, up in counties. Uh, and in 1980s, one of the uh, one of the reform agenda was um, allowing the farmers to um, kind of divide up the, the commune lands among themselves in what them called the household responsibility system. So so each family, um, even though they don't they don't have the outright land ownership. But they will get a plot of land which they are kind of responsible for planting, and and also a, a large part of their their produce will no longer be uh, <coughs> requisitioned by the state. They, they're allowed to, you know, sell it on the at the time what we in China called自由市场, free literally free market. They will go to the cities and sell their their vegetables and produce on in these uh, free markets. Um, and that was a big change for the farmers, and 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 for for that you know we all Zhao Ziyang was promoted to uh, in this in this to the to the central government, and and after the Hu Yaobang's fall, Zhao Ziyang was the next guy to take take over the reign. So that that's kind of like the political outlines of what happened in the nineteen eighties. Uh, yeah. So, and I think those two people are going to be very key in 1989, yes. both Hu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyang, yes. right? So, yes. I think we can move ahead a couple of years to Hu Yaobang's um, somewhat unexpected uh, uh, passing due to a heart attack. Right. And you remember reading about that in the news? Yes, oh, of course. But before we even jump on that, I wanted to just briefly touch also on 1987 protest um, because there was a there was an anti-African student protest in 1987 and and this in Nanjing? yes yes and this happened I think that is in 1988 like Hehai University right? okay, okay that right. is actually just a few months before yeah, I just remember I'm... it was before 1989 kind of like the prelude and and I remember that because I hear adults around me in conversation talking about it yeah, um, this is in Chongqing, on Chongqing University campus, and and, and the, the how it went was basically um, in the in there was a lot of change in nineteen eighties, and one of the big change was economic change, uh, and and Zhao Ziyang as one of the men who was tasked with economic reform, um, he he did a couple of things. One is uh, the ease of subsidies. And um, and also lifting of price control on a lot of the items. So there was a couple effects of that policy. Um, lifting the price control cost inflation. Before a lot of the price were kept kind of artificially low by the government mandate, right? And 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 there was almost like a policy of you know artificially depress the grain price because all the 
farmers in the countryside were required to sell their all their produce to the government at a at a government set artificially low price, and then the government basically take these uh, grain and then use that to subsidize the, the urban dwellers. Priority of China then was to develop the cities to make sure the urban dwellers have manageable welfare system, right? They, they can go to schools. We essentially create a two-tier system where uh, peasants and the farmers uh, live in a very poor condition compared to the, the, their urban counterparts. And there was a joke in China that, that, that the, the, the urban dwellers live in the first world and the farmers live in the third world. Um, uh, kind of been put in place by the um, the residence permit system, the hukou, right? So if you have Longchun hukou, if your residence permit is with the countryside, that's where you you stay. You know, you don't. You, it's very hard to move around in China uh, at that time. Very hard to change your residence permit, say from the country for your country from countryside to a city. I mean, you have to pull some major connection to get that done. So to just to have a residence permit in a big city like Beijing or Shanghai, that place you above like 95% of other citizens in the country. You, you kind of won the lottery, right? You, you, you will have the best med, uh, Medicare, you will have the best educational system, best of everything, basically. Every, everywhere else, everyone else, you know, and, you know, sucks to be you. <laughs> and then, um, I don't know why I started wondering about talking about that. I was going to talk about 1980s. Uh, I was talking about the background of the anti-African student protest is that um, a lot of the uh, college subsidies were kind of withdrawn. I talked about earlier how in the beginning everything was free, right, for, for uh, Chinese students. In nineteen, in the late nineteen eighties, well, actually throughout nineteen eighties, one of the government policy was allowed um, the existence of private entrepreneurs. So people were allowed to operate their own businesses. While all this was going on, while the you know there was inflation, farmers were allowed to sell their produce at the so-called free markets. When the price control was lifted, price was rising. Farmers were actually benefiting, but the urban dwellers are now kind of hurting because now their their wage has not rise in pace with inflation, and people like re relying, especially people relying on on wages, like like for example, college professors. There was a, there was a joke that in Chinese, the, the word uh, for missile, ballistic missile, dan. And the, the, the tea egg, cha yedan, kind of, kind of homophobic. The, the joke is that the college professor who work on ballistic missiles don't make uh, as much as the, the old grannies who sell the tea eggs on the street corner. Um, and in many cases, it was true because all the private, private entrepreneurs uh, were, were making, you know, Zoras. At the time, they were the first millionaires, mil millionaires in terms of mi a million yuan, right? Uh, the first millionaires were appearing in China, whereas all these old college professors were still relying on their state wages, which was stagnant or haven't kept in pace. And so you mentioned your dad was a lecturer at Chongqing University. Like, did, 
Did he have that sense too? Was he also feeling the pinch? Well, my my dad is a special case because he left China early in 1985 as one of those first students okay. who were allowed to go abroad to study. Um, and and so he, this did not affect him, but my uh, rest of my extended family were still in China. You know, my, my grandparents, uh, their children, my uncles and aunties, um, they were definitely affected by the, the price inflation. There was uh, there were a couple panics of uh, uh, price panic in, in late eighties, right? Like people, because because the price were of basic staples like sugar and stuff like that were rising so much. You know, people were rushing to the stores to buy up everything because you know their their their, um, their purchase power is getting reduced daily. Um, there, there was a there was a little little bit of panic there, and um, just just that kind of in that kind of general atmosphere, right? There was a general resentment mixed with tinge of racism against uh, the at the time the African exchange students who were on. Uh, many Ch- Chinese campuses at the time, uh, because the perception was in China at the time was you know that concludes a previous section of Tiananmen Memories Part One. The full episode is about an hour and a half. If you would like to know more, please subscribe by going to our Patreon website www.patreon.com slash silk and that's in Nancy steel silk and steel or you can go to the patreon website www.patreon.com just search for the word silk the first link should be silk and steel podcast or you can search for my name in Google. That's Carl Za. Carl spelled with a C. And Za is my last name. Z H A Zebra Henry Apple. If you want to follow me on social media, my Twitter handle is Carl Za, like my name. Um, one word, no space. Or go to Facebook. Again, just search for Carl Zah. There is a space. I'm also on Instagram, where I post videos of my travel in China. My Instagram handle is Shaka Zah. Shaka as in Shaka Zulu. Again, my last name, Zah. Spell Zebra Henry Apple. Thank you for listening, and I hope you subscribe. Until next time. Yeshua 